A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of graphic material that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Hi. I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults. This is part one of our exploration into the disturbing story of Silvia Mares Moreno and her family of co-conspirators, dubbed by the media the Sect of Nakasari. Silvia led her father, her partner, and her children in the carrying out of three human sacrifices to Santa Muerte, known in English as Saint Death. The impoverished family believed that Santa Muerte would bring them wealth and good fortune if they killed on her behalf. Instead, these grotesque murders led to their entire family's imprisonment. In this episode, we'll go back in time to explore the origins of the skeletal, grim reaperist-like folk saint, Santa Muerte, who Sylvia worshipped and eventually killed for, offering three human sacrifices. Then we'll delve into Sylvia's history and the tragic circumstances of her first grisly murder for Santa Muerte. In part two, we'll explore the sect of Nakosari's remaining crimes, two more gruesome human sacrifices. Both victims were only 10 years old. We'll also explore the vital tip from a villager that led to the sect's arrest. Just a reminder, if you're as fascinated by cults as we are, you can listen to previous episodes of Cults on your favorite podcast directory. Don't forget to subscribe while you're there because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. If you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. It helps people like you find us. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. When you hear the phrase human sacrifice, it might conjure illustrated images of ritualistic killings from centuries or even millennia past. Perhaps paintings of the biblical Abraham's son Isaac on the slab, God's only begotten son Christ on the cross, or the Hollywood trope of villains flinging virgins into volcanoes. Forensic and anthropological evidence confirms that numerous societies around the globe have killed humans in rituals since prehistoric times. These sacrifices were frequently carried out by spiritual leaders on behalf of groups who wanted to appease angry gods or entice the gods to bestow favors upon them. Other times, the killing was meted out to vanquished foes in order to thank the gods for victory in battle. What doesn't typically come to our minds today is the terrifying but very real modern-day practice of human sacrifice. One of the most horrific examples in recent history took place just over the U.S. border in the Mexican state of Sonora. And that's what we're going to talk about today. 
You might jump to the conclusion that the crimes we're about to explore were committed by cold-hearted cartel assassins. But what makes the story so deeply unnerving is that between 2009 and 2012, one unfathomably misguided woman living in a sleepy mining town in northern Mexico took her devotion to a controversial folk saint to the ultimate extreme. Vanessa will take the lead on the psychology here and throughout the rest of the episode. While she's not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, Vanessa has done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Greg. Silvia Moraz Moreno, the leader of the sect of Nakazari, yielded a huge amount of influence over her family, who were her followers, as she managed to coerce seven relatives to collude with her in three sacrificial slayings. Her first victim was a close friend, but it got even worse because her next two victims were 10-year-old boys. And even more terrifying, the boys were members of Sylvia's own extended family. Her victim selection appeared to be more about access than anything else, but the callousness with which she and her family killed those they were closest to makes their crimes feel particularly heinous. It's important to note that we've scoured every source we can find about the sect of Nakasari. While there's been a good deal of coverage, there's still also significant conflicting information and some gaps we just can't fill. After the original flurry of public interest in the sect of Nakasari, there wasn't much in-depth coverage. Perhaps that's due in part to the fact that the family confessed and there was no trial. But certainly the high level of turbulence across Mexico meant that there were many other pressing stories to cover. We've pulled together the most credible information we could find in order to tell what's at its core, a truly tragic and disturbing story of human cruelty. Silvia Moraz Moreno killed her victims as offerings to the controversial Mexican folk saint Santa Muerte, or in English, Saint Death. Like many cults who find their roots in a larger religious tradition, the sect of Nakazari was a clumsily self-styled offshoot of the cult of Santa Muerte. Let's clarify a couple key points about the cult of Santa Muerte so that we can avoid any confusion. In the context of a saint's cult, the word cult has a different meaning than it typically does on our show. We typically cover destructive cults, which the sect of Nakasari was, but the wider cult of Santa Muerte is not a destructive cult. A saint's cult simply refers to veneration by their devotees, or in Latin, cultus. There's a cult of the Virgin Mary, a cult of St. Jude, and many others. Both officially recognized saints and folk saints have cults of followers. We'll get into the difference between official and folk saints later, but for now it's important to remember that in this context, the word cult isn't intended to indicate anything even remotely ominous. By the time Sylvia made her first human sacrifice, the larger cult of Santa Muerte had an estimated 10 to 12 million devotees, predominantly in Mexico, Central America, and the U.S., but also around the globe. So it's most accurate to think of the rapidly growing cult of Santa Muerte as a new religious movement, a term we talked about on the show before. There's no static definition for an NRM, but it's typically applied to more recent spiritual movements that stand apart from the larger, more widely accepted religious traditions. 
Additionally, while devotees frequently make small offerings to their saints, like lighting candles or leaving flowers, the typical practices of the cult of Santa Muerte don't include or condone human sacrifice. Silvia Moraz Moreno came up with that idea herself. In order to scratch the surface of the logic behind Silvia and her family's twisted crimes, it's important to understand the origins of the folk saint they loved, La Santa Muerte. So the first big question is, who is Santa Muerte? Well, hers is a truly multifaceted story. Most scholars believe that Santa Muerte is a product of syncretism, or the blending of two religious traditions. In this case, the influences were Aztec and Spanish, and they date back to the 16th century. The Aztecs were an incredibly powerful and sophisticated group of people who ruled over vast swaths of Mexico. By the early 16th century, they'd conquered around 500 other indigenous tribes. Their combined population numbered around five to six million, and with some 140,000 living in the Aztec capital, which is present-day Mexico City. The total indigenous population in Mexico at that time was an estimated 25 million people. Aztec society followed a rigid caste system that spanned from a ruler and nobles all the way to serfs and slaves. It's interesting to note for the purposes of our story that one of the only ways someone in a lower caste could class jump was to distinguish themselves in battle and capture enemies to sacrifice to the gods. We won't go into detail about the role human sacrifice played in Aztec culture because it's extremely complex. But it has been well documented that human sacrifice was a highly ritualized part of Aztec religious life. Among the many spiritual figures in Aztec mythology was Mictecasiwat, the Lady of the Land of the Dead, who, along with her husband, controlled the underworld called Mictlan. Mictecasiwat and her husband were frequently depicted with skeletal bodies, but always with skull heads. So it's easy to see Mictecasiwat's visual similarity to the skeletal Santa Muerte. In 1519, the conquistador Hernando Cortes landed in Mexico, intent on claiming the land for Spain. Over the course of a couple of years, he slaughtered tens of thousands of Aztecs and took control of their land. Many indigenous people died during Cortes's conquest, but European illnesses killed an even greater number. In two studies, scientists have examined the DNA from the stomach of an indigenous victim of a particularly deadly pestilence and proved its link to a salmonella strain that originated in Europe. When that strain hit Mexico in the 1540s, it wiped out an estimated 80% of the indigenous population. That's around 20 million lives. People were dying in such large numbers that mass graves were dug. From morning till night, priests filled the graves with bodies. Between the many battles with the conquistadors, that catastrophic salmonella outbreak, and a number of other lethal diseases, death was ever-present in people's minds in a way that's hard to fathom. Their losses must have left deep, lasting scars on the entire cultural consciousness. That, combined with the stranglehold the Spaniards kept on indigenous people's lives, provided fuel for syncretism to occur and enabled the birth of a new, hybrid entity, Santa Muerte or Saint Death. Traditional worship of Mictecasiwat was driven underground by the Spanish invaders, but the Aztecs' Lady of the Underworld, 
Mictecasiwat, was still very much part of the people's spiritual life. The Spanish, for their part, had imported the Grim Reaper. His terrifying skeletal form and sharp scythe had become the ubiquitous symbol of the inescapability of mortality during the 14th century when the bubonic plague, a.k.a. the Black Death, ravaged Europe and wiped out an estimated one-third of the population. Scholars postulate that somewhere in the late 16th century, in the shadows and behind closed doors, Miktekasiwat and the Grim Reaper fused into La Santa Muerte. But let's remember that we're talking about something that happened 500 years ago. So it's not the only possible origin for Santa Muerte that's been considered. Some religious leaders devoted to Santa Muerte argue that she was born of a Perepechan tribal tale. As the story goes, a Perepechan couple had a baby who was born a full-sized adult woman. Frightened of how others might react to their strange child, the couple locked her away from sight. But eventually, she escaped. When the villagers saw the woman-child roaming the streets in black or white robes, they thought she was some kind of spirit. Spanish inquisitors were alarmed by rumors of the strange woman-child. They arrested her, tried her for witchcraft, and burned her alive at the stake in front of the whole village. After her screams ceased and her flesh had burned away, all that was left was a stark white skeleton. So perhaps this is the mythological seed from which Santa Muerte grew. It's certainly possible. There's a number of other indigenous people's stories that could have influenced the creation of Santa Muerte. Maybe part of her power comes from the mystery surrounding her origin. I think so, and the fact that numerous cultural imaginations had related touchstones potentially contributed to Santa Muerte's propagation, making her an extremely potent figure. So potent that when the Spanish found out about her, they wanted to wipe her out with vigor and finality. Definitely. Even though her name was Saint Death, she wasn't the sort of saint recognized by the church, though some scholars would disagree. According to the Catholic Church, their canonized saints were once real-life Christians. In order to become an official saint, church officials thoroughly vet a person to make sure they lived a life worth emulating in the eyes of the church. There are many examples of saints who made less than exemplary decisions during their lives. But what was most important was that they repented and they became close to God before death. The other key part of being recognized as a saint is that the person must perform at least two posthumous miracles, typically miraculous, permanent healings that can be verified by doctors. Then it's up to a pope's discretion to make the person's sainthood official. Folk saints, on the other hand, can be based on real people, like folk healers and heroes. But also, there's sometimes reimaginings of indigenous deities or spirits. The Catholic Church believes that canonized saints can hear people's prayers and relay them to God for his consideration. Folk saints are entirely by and for the people, hence the label folk. They're not bound by the rules of scripture. Their powers are imbued to them by their devotees. Folk saints are believed to be able to intercede with God and act directly in people's lives. This allows for a more direct and intimate connection between devotees and their preferred folk saints. The Catholic Church considers folk saints false idols, which are prohibited in the Ten Commandments. The monotheistic Catholic Church doesn't want congregants to follow people who were sinners in life, false gods or spirits. But in spite of the Church's best efforts, folk saints persist. 
Today, they're more commonly appealed to by people from marginalized communities who ask for simple favors that reflect their basic survival needs. As far as Santa Muerte, the record shows that she was on the church's radar as early as the 18th century, and they were bent on eradicating her from the beginning. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. Ladies, your workouts are about to get an upgrade. The new Inspire leggings by Kalia are exactly what you want when it comes to activewear. It's their most versatile collection yet. They look good, feel good, and stay put. Using Lycra Adaptive Fiber, it compresses and molds to the body like a second skin. And it's unbelievably stretchy, so you can move however you want. Shop the Inspire Collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick's Sporting Goods. And now, back to the story. Centuries ago, the Catholic Church was disturbed to discover that indigenous peoples in Mexico had incorporated the worship of Santa Muerte into their liturgy. In his groundbreaking book, Santa Muerte, Devoted to Death, the scholar Andrew Chestnut found an early mention of Santa Muerte in an inquisitor's document from 1797. Chestnut writes, quote, focusing on the Chichimec people of the present-day state of Guanajuato, The church record speaks of 30 Indians who at night gather in their chapel to drink peyote until they lose their minds. They light upside down candles, some of which are black. They dance with paper dolls. They whip holy crosses and also a figure of death that they call Santa Muerte. And they bind it with a wet rope, threatening to whip and burn it if it does not perform a miracle." Chestnut goes on to explain that the Inquisitors discovered that the miracle the devotees were requesting of Santa Muerte was related to, quote, local political control, end quote. That was totally unacceptable to the Inquisitors, so they destroyed the chapel in question and every shrine to Santa Muerte that they could find. Obviously, the Inquisitors failed to eradicate Santa Muerte. For 150 years, Saint Death was passed through untraceable whispers from generation to generation, hiding in hearts and homes without ever alerting Catholic authorities, who certainly would have tried to silence her again. The mere fact that Santa Muerte's devotees kept her alive in secret for so long is an incredible testament to her power as a figure and speaks to how vital she was to their lives. In the 1940s, Santa Muerte began to reemerge in Mexico. At this time, her devotees, who were mostly women, appealed to her almost exclusively for one reason, and one reason alone. Assistance in the matters of love. Hmm. Considering Santa Muerte's roots as the harbinger of death, it's pretty surprising. For the next three decades, a handful of anthropologists documented evidence of Santa Muerte's devotees across Mexico. Her devotees weren't great in number, but they were far flung, which before the internet was incredibly meaningful. She must have been passed along predominantly by word of mouth. 
In her book, Mexican Myths and Magicians, researcher Maria de la Luz Bernal wrote about a group of devotees from the 1970s. De la Luz documented women clad in black who brought candles and knelt together at an altar to Santa Muerte. They'd chant, Most holy death, torture him, mortify him, imploring Saint Death to punish their wandering lovers. As public awareness of Santa Muerte continued to grow, the Catholic Church got nervous. They thought the terrifying visage of Saint Death was dangerous, even satanic. In spite of what the Catholic Church wanted, veneration of Santa Muerte increased. Her devotees' fondness for her was reflected in her many nicknames. They included La Flaquita, La Huesuda, La Niña Blanca, La Niña Bonita, La Dama Poderosa, and La Madrina. Translation, the skinny lady, the bony lady, the white girl, the pretty girl, the powerful lady, and the godmother. Obviously, some of these names are inspired by the fact that she's a clothed skeleton, but her sumptuous attire and powerful symbols help explain her more flattering nicknames. In one of Santa Muerte's most common forms, she's portrayed much like the Virgin of Guadalupe. Her bony frame is clothed in a red dress and a blue robe, her figure backed by a saintly glow. She's also frequently shown in bridal attire. People get very creative with the symbols they pair with her, but she's almost always carrying a scythe, the same menacing tool carried by the Grim Reaper of European origin. The scythe underscores Santa Muerte's relationship to death, her ability to cut down human life. She's also frequently depicted holding a globe, which indicates her immense power over the entire world, death as the ultimate equalizer. And Santa Muerte often holds scales, which symbolize justice and balance, an area of particular import to devotees seeking the bony lady's assistance with legal matters. The bony lady cuts an undeniable menacing image, so it's no surprise that the media bubbled with stories of her connections with dark forces for the better part of a decade. She made one highly publicized appearance in association with Cuban-American drug trafficker, serial killer, and cult leader Adolfo Constanzo. In this case, we do mean cult as in a destructive cult. The media dubbed Constanzo and his followers the narco-Satanists. Constanzo had been a practitioner of the Haitian religion Palo Mayombe since childhood and as a teen pledged himself to Palo Mayombe's version of Satan. Constanzo believed that ritual human sacrifice would create a magical shield to protect his cult and their drug smuggling operations from the authorities. In April 1989, police got a tip that a missing American spring breaker named Mark Kilroy may have been abducted by Constanzo's men. On April 11, 1989, police served a warrant at Constanzo's ranch. Constanzo escaped. A search of the ranch uncovered the remains of more than a dozen people who the cult had tortured and ritually sacrificed in gruesome ways that included dismemberment and the removal of brains. Kilroy was among the dead. Authorities finally caught up with Constanzo in Mexico City on May 6, 1989, and there was a massive gun battle. When Constanzo realized he was outgunned, he ordered one of his disciples to shoot him, choosing death over arrest. There was a single statue of Santa Muerte among Constanzo's extensive collection of ritual objects. 
Authorities weren't able to determine how important the bony lady was to Constanzo, but her presence at such a horrifying scene was not ignored. Constanzo wasn't the only sadistic killer who was drawn to Santa Muerte. In 1998, a police officer turned kidnapper, Daniel Arismendi Lopez, was arrested. People called Arismendi the ear chopper because he cut off his captives' ears and sent them to their families to terrify them into paying ransom. This tactic had helped him collect around $40 million. When Arismendi was arrested at his home in Nocalpan, just northwest of Mexico City, police discovered a substantial shrine to Santa Muerte. The fact that police let Arismendi bring a statue of Saint Death to prison with him received extensive media attention. But it wasn't until 2001 that Santa Muerte truly came out of the shadows. And when she came out, she came out in a big way, so huge that it would be impossible to force her back into hiding. Let's go to Mexico City, where the Aztecs once ruled, and visit the infamous Barrio Tepito, an area so dangerous, cops hesitate to go there. One of Tepito's most famous residents is Enriqueta Romero, who everyone calls Doña Queta. Doña Queta was born in 1944. The charming, hardworking woman, now in her 70s, dyes her short hair black with a brilliant shock of white in the front and speaks in the colorful language of her neighborhood. She'd been quietly devoted to Santa Muerte since the 1960s and passed her devotion to the bony lady to her family. In 2001, when one of Doña Queta's adult sons got locked up in jail, he built an altar to Santa Muerte in a cell and prayed for early release. Santa Muerte answered his prayers and those of Doña Queta, who'd also been praying for him. Doña Queta's son was so grateful to Santa Muerte that once he was back in Tepito, he gave his mom a life-size statue of Santa Muerte. Doña Queta and her husband's quarters were small, so the large statue took up a significant place in their home. Doña Queta sold quesadillas out of their place to supplement the family's income. Her customers took notice of the massive statue of Santa Muerte. They started bringing the bony lady small offerings. So many offerings came that Doña Queta ran out of space inside. She and her husband decided to create a special place for the bony lady outside of their home and planned an unveiling. Along with a small gathering of friends, they brought Santa Muerte into the public eye on Dia de los Muertos. The number of people who visited Doña Queta's statue grew exponentially larger over time. Now, Doña Queta's monthly service attracts thousands of devotees. People come as a sort of pilgrimage to the modest shrine, sometimes walking on their knees to show their veneration for the bony lady. They leave offerings for Santa Muerte of lit candles, mezcal, cigars, flowers, candy, and marijuana, among other things, hoping that she'll assist them with problems concerning health, love, money, and the law. The Catholic Church and Mexican government continued to claim that Santa Muerte was satanic. On that subject, Doña Queta has said, quote, I'm Catholic. Look, I completely respect the Church. I pray to the Virgin and to God because God is above all things. The problem is priests, corruption, and that everything is crap. That's why people come here. Here nobody judges you. In the end, we all end up in her arms." End quote. Some people wondered why official saints didn't seem to satisfy Mexico's largely Catholic population. 
It seemed that many people perceived official saints as pure and perfect, which could feel alienating to folks whose complex lives didn't mesh with the church's moral ideals. Santa Muerte was free of all of that baggage. Her popularity stemmed in large part from the fact that she didn't judge her devotees, and that was perhaps the most salient characteristic that drove her wide appeal. No matter who a person was, they could turn to the bony lady without shame. Their deep devotion to her was characterized by the loyalty one feels as a recipient of unconditional love. Doña Queda remarked to the Telegraph, quote, She shouldn't be feared. She is not vengeful. She will not hasten your death. She is part of life, and she protects those that no one else will. Santa Muerte's acceptance of all people was a direct result of her connection with death, the great equalizer. She was believed to embody a truth we all share, the irrefutable fact that we will all eventually die. Doña Queda became one of the most important figures in the cult of Santa Muerte and could have capitalized on the popularity of her shrine. She could have sought leadership or financial reward. But unlike destructive cult leaders who live for adoration and are intent on manipulating their followers for personal gain, Doña Queda rejected what she considered disrespectful monetization of her beloved saint. Doña Queta and her husband made a little shop that sold particular items like colored devotional candles, which are used for specific types of prayer requests, depending on the color. The shop wasn't flashy and overpriced. Doña Queta stayed refreshingly grounded in her faith and uninterested in self-aggrandizement. But she wasn't without her troubles. In 2016, her husband was shot and killed in front of their house by men on motorcycles. Doña Queta also had lung cancer. She said, quote, Yes, I got scared. I said, no mames. I did not want to die, and I told her, and I entrusted to her. My flaquita is not going to take me. Do you know who will take me? God. He will decide when I leave. He will say, hey, we need Doña Queta here. Since the bony lady's debut in Tepito, her following only grew. Her fierce image and reputation for responding swiftly to her devotees' prayers made her the unofficial patron saint of the dispossessed and figurehead of the fastest-growing new religious movement in the Americas. But as Santa Muerte grew in popularity, its association with criminal enterprises and drug cartels was impossible to wash out. Once Santa Muerte was on the scene, Narcos began to prefer her to their previous right-hand man, folk saint Jesus Malverde. Malverde had been a Robin Hood-like figure during his lifetime, but the mere mortal was no match for Santa Muerte's fierce skeletal image. The scholar Andrew Chestnut wrote, quote, over the past decade, arrests and killings of low-level drug dealers found with evidence of devotion to the bony lady have become routine. What is more extraordinary are the higher-ranking cartel bosses and hitmen who have been detained sporting tattoos, pendants, engraved pistols, and other images of Saint Death." End quote. Chestnut cites a 2007 incident in which Gulf cartel assassins executed three men at a shrine to Santa Muerte near Nuevo Laredo. There was no decisive indication as to whether or not these killings were human sacrifices to Santa Muerte, or if the theatrical murders were simply meant to inspire terror. 
In March of 2009, in an effort to deal a blow to narco-traffickers, the Mexican government escalated their condemnation of Santa Muerte. Military forces descended upon the border town of Nuevo Laredo and used backhoes to demolish some 30 shrines to the Boney Lady. Another unit laid to waste additional shrines in Tijuana. Those actions put the Boney Lady on the radar of American TV producers. In 2010, Santa Muerte made appearances in Breaking Bad Season 3 and Dexter Season 5. Both shows featured storylines with drug traffickers devoted to Santa Muerte. Death and destruction followed. In 2013, the Catholic Church declared devotion to Santa Muerte heresy. Vatican official Cardinal Ravasi called Santa Muerte, quote, a blasphemous cult of organized crime, end quote. But Santa Muerte's popular appeal, especially among young people disillusioned with the Catholic Church and struggling to build their lives in Mexico's ongoing economic crisis, only grew. And her popularity among narcos was stronger than ever. Hopefully this history has helped ground us in Santa Muerte's legacy. So we have some context for the role she's about to play in the lives of Silvia Merez Moreno and her family. Narcos weren't the only ones praying to Santa Muerte to support their nefarious activities. Moreno transformed her family into a destructive cult and committed murder on Santa Muerte's behalf. We'll return to our story in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. And now back to cults. What do we know about Sylvia Marez Moreno? Well, the future leader of her family's cult came from humble beginnings. Silvia's father, Cipriano Moraz Aguayo, was born in Madera, Chihuahua in 1929. He was 39 in 1968 when Silvia was born in Hermosillo, Sonora, a northwestern state in Mexico. Sonora's current economy is fueled by agribusiness, along with manufacturing, tourism, and some mining. And the drug trade. Though when Sylvia was born, it was nothing compared to what it is today. Currently, the Sinaloa cartel, made infamous in part by El Chapo, keeps a tight hold on Sonora. They dominate the corridor to the Mexico-Arizona border, as well as the border itself. And with that comes a lot of violence. Needless to say, Hermosillo's been the economic center of the state, both lawful and unlawful, for a long time. According to Standard & Poor's, Hermosillo currently has one of the highest rates of per capita wealth in Mexico, featuring a local per capita GDP of 18,271 U.S. dollars, nearly double the national figure. But it's unlikely that Sylvia's family thrived there. If they had, she may have stayed. 
1984, when Silvia was 16, she gave birth to Ramon Omar Palacios Miraz, 40 miles away from Hermosillo, in the 100-person town of Miguel Aleman, about halfway to the Gulf of California coast. Silvia may have moved to Miguel Aleman to be closer to the child's father, Palacios, or perhaps her mother's family. As with many things about Silvia, it's a bit of a mystery. By 1991, Silvia had moved 200 miles to the northeast and settled in Nacozari de Garcia. The copper mining town of less than 15,000 people was nestled in the mountains along a highway that stretched north to the Mexico-U.S. border. Copper was discovered there in 1968, and Mexico's federal government spent hundreds of millions of dollars to exploit the mine and develop others in the region. An estimated 80% of the town's residents worked in La Caridad, the largest copper mine in the world. In spite of Nakazari's location on a critical route to the Mexico-Arizona border, the town enjoyed an insulated peace, passed over by cartel violence. One city official commented, nothing happens here. It's possible Sylvia went to Nakazari in hopes of greater financial possibilities, or perhaps for love, but again, we don't know for sure. In 1991, she gave birth to Francisca Magdalena Barron Meraz, nicknamed La Nena, or the girl. Based on Mexico's naming traditions, we know that Francisca had a different father than her older brother Omar, whose paternal last name was Palacios, not Barron. In 1992, Silvia had a second daughter, Georgina Guadalupe Barron Meraz, known as Coqui. And in 1997, Silvia had a third daughter, Silvia Yahaira Barone Miraz. All three of her daughters share the same paternal last name. We don't know more than the surnames of Omar and the girls' fathers, or if Silvia had any other children. In 2009, the Miraz family lived in an area called Milpias Justiniano, on the outskirts of town, essentially squatting on open land. Massive electrical towers loomed nearby, but the family had no electricity or running water in their shacks, which were cobbled together from scrap wood, corrugated metal, and plastic sheeting to keep out the rain. They were protected by aggressive dogs. Their living conditions have been described as subhuman. Sylvia's father and adult son lived at home with her along with her partner, Eduardo. The men of the Moraz family worked as some of Mexico's estimated 800,000 pepinadores, which roughly translates to scavengers, but are more commonly known as garbage pickers. As pepinadores, they sorted through trash in order to find items of value for resale. Typically, pepinadores focus on gathering recyclable materials like glass, aluminum, and plastic. It's dangerous and toxic work. A pepinador who collects for 12 hours a day might earn around the equivalent of $60 a week by selling what they recover to a middleman, who will go on to sell it for reuse. Business Insider reported that in 2014, Mexicans earning in the bottom 20%, nearly 25 million people, had an average net worth of $80. The Marazas fell into this very low income group. Sylvia had three daughters living at home with her. Also living with Sylvia was her son's partner, Zoila Hada Santa Cruz, who was in fact a year older than Sylvia. While the Moraz men were gone sorting trash, other men from out of town came in and out of the Moraz home. The unusual traffic led police to suspect the women were making money through sex work. 
but the authorities never investigated or made any arrests. The family's abject poverty was obvious to the whole village. The city government gave the Morazes food, clothes, and free farm animals. A board member from the Sacred Heart Church said he had also helped the Moraz family. One villager said, quote, I took them chickens and goats. Sylvia came to the church for the food pantries, but didn't enter the temple. I encouraged them to integrate into the community that they shouldn't be afraid because of their extreme poverty. The Morazes mostly kept to themselves. But one day in 2009, Martin Baran Lopez, a 48-year-old blacksmith who lived in the village in a neighborhood of El Asilo, took in an unkempt young pregnant woman. It was Sylvia's middle daughter, 17-year-old Koki. It's reported that Martine taught Koki to bathe, use the washing machine, and make preparations for her coming baby. Martine and Koki developed a relationship, and he quickly realized that Koki's family was strange. Martine only visited the family in Milpias Justiniano twice over the course of about three years. He didn't like what he saw at the Moraz home. Inside Sylvia's shack, he could see pictures of Santa Muerte with candlelit altars. Koki's family would show up at Martine's to see her without warning. They sometimes had Sylvia and her partner Eduardo's stepson Octavio with them. Martine didn't like the surprise visits from the Moraz clan. He avoided them as much as possible, especially Sylvia and Eduardo. Martine described them as, quote, very strange, always self-absorbed, end quote. As you can imagine, with little to no money, the Moraz family's lives were difficult. Sylvia was the matriarch and wanted them all to have a better life. We don't know exactly when or how she became aware of Santa Muerte, though she said it was at least two years before her first human sacrifice. At some point after she began to worship Santa Muerte, she created an altar in her home with two pictures of Saint Death. When asked about one of the pictures, a town official said that he didn't think Sylvia could have afforded it. He suspected that she'd stolen the picture from one of the many shrines that people set up along Nakazari's mountainous roads to ask for safe passage through the difficult terrain. Within a few years' time, Sylvia escalated her devotion to Santa Muerte from the typical prayers and small offerings to something incredibly menacing. By December of 2009, Sylvia was fixated on the bony lady's ability to turn her life around. Sylvia told her family that Santa Muerte would help them find money to steal and bless them with good health. But the bony lady required a very special offering. She wanted a human life. Like other cult leaders we've explored, Sylvia wielded a lot of social power in her family, and she reportedly spearheaded what happened next. Sylvia had a close friend who she hung out with in the local cantinas. This friend was Clotilde Romero Pacheco. She was a diminutive, physically slight, 55-year-old woman. It makes sense, considering everything we know about Sylvia, that her friend was someone she could boss around. During the day, Clotilde sold popsicles from a cart that she and her husband pushed through Nakasari's cobblestone streets. On the night of December 6, 2009, with a nearly full moon in the sky, Sylvia lured Clotilde to the Moraz's shacks on the outskirts of town. Clotilde trusted her longtime friend, which made her an easy target. Once Clotilde was inside the Moraz's remote candlelit shack, Sylvia looked for her moment to strike. There was a 20 peso note on the ground, 
worth around $1. Sylvia told Clotilde to pick it up. When Clotilde crouched down to get the bill, Sylvia swung an axe and sunk the blade into Clotilde's neck. She delivered a total of three blows that sprayed blood all over the small home. Some reports say Sylvia beheaded her friend. It's also reported that after axing Clotilde, Sylvia stabbed her in the abdomen and collected blood for Santa Muerte. If Sylvia did behead Clotilde, it's not clear why she would stab her in the abdomen to collect blood, but this is how Clotilde's death was reported. The bottom line, Sylvia murdered Clotilde, collected her blood, and poured it on the altar to Santa Muerte. After Sylvia offered Clotilde's blood to Santa Muerte, the Marazas had to get rid of the body. They tried to burn Clotilde, but discovered the hard way that cremation is a whole lot easier said than done. Sylvia's 80-year-old father, Cipriano, searched on foot for a spot to bury Clotilde. He found a place down a nearby hill and dug a large pit. Then Cipriano and 17-year-old Koki carried Clotilde's body, wrapped in a blanket, to her shallow grave. It says a lot about the sway Sylvia held over her father and daughter that she was able to get them to handle Clotilde's bloody remains. Clotilde's husband had no idea where she was. He rallied some other villagers to search for his wife in all her usual haunts. No one found her. They put up flyers with Clotilde's picture, but there were no viable tips and Clotilde didn't return. You've probably heard about the massive number of people who've disappeared in Mexico as a result of cartel violence, but keep in mind that kind of thing never happened in Nakasari. There was no precedent for this. With no clues or logical explanations, the search fizzled. People concluded Clotilde must have run off with another man. Her husband was left worried and wondering what had really happened to his wife. Sylvia's transformation from a seemingly innocuous, if odd, woman to a vicious killer is nothing short of shocking. But what's even more horrifying is that she convinced her family members to become murderers as well. How did she manage to turn them all into her accomplices? This is where Sylvia's power comes into play. Clearly, she was the head of a very dysfunctional family. Their family dynamic follows many of the same patterns we've seen in destructive cults comprised of unrelated people. These systems rely on what the esteemed American psychiatrist Murray Bowen referred to as undifferentiated family ego mass, which is a type of dysfunctional family system that's passed from generation to generation. Can we start with what a differentiated family looks like? Good idea. According to Bowen, highly differentiated families allow individuals to be themselves. Members respect the rights and privacy of others, and each person is seen as someone who can think, feel, and act independently. Members of the group are sensitive and empathetic to each other, which tends to foster real intimacy and closeness among the group. Oh, that sounds like a pretty good deal. But then what is an undifferentiated family like? So undifferentiated family ego mass, sometimes called fusion, looks pretty different. These family groups are emotionally stuck together. If a member expresses their individuality, they're viewed as disloyal and a threat to the stability of the whole. People's emotions, positive and negative, are felt strongly across the family system without differentiating one person from another. Meaning, if one person has a bad day, everyone has a bad day. And research shows that negative feelings are felt more intensely across the system than positive feelings. 
This type of family uses dysfunctional strategies to solve their problems. So in the case of the Marazas... Well, they seemed like they were on the extremely undifferentiated end of the spectrum, and Sylvia was clearly the center of power in the family. According to Bowen's theory, quote, people with a poorly differentiated self depend so heavily on the acceptance and approval of others that they quickly adjust what they think, say, and do to please others, or they dogmatically proclaim what others should be like and pressure them to conform. Bullies depend on approval and acceptance as much as chameleons, but bullies push others to agree with them rather than their agreeing with others." End quote. So Sylvia, who had raised four of her seven accomplices since birth, filled the role of the bully leader and everyone else fell in line, needing, because of their extremely poor differentiation, to please her. So basically, Sylvia's distorted reality ruled her family and made it possible for her to pull everyone into killing for Santa Muerte and staying quiet about it. Unfortunately, it seems like this was the case. Once her cowed family had seen her axe down her friend on behalf of Santa Muerte, they were even less likely to step out of line. After Sylvia earned the dubious honor of committing the first confirmed human sacrifice to Santa Muerte, the Moraz family waited for Santa Muerte to shower them with good fortune. But the bony lady must not have delivered on her promise, because as the months passed, Sylvia's ideas about how they could curry more of Santa Muerte's favor appear to have evolved. In our next episode, we'll investigate how Sylvia transitioned from killing 55-year-old Clotilde to murdering children, in the hope Santa Muerte will show good fortune to her family. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Join us next Tuesday as we continue to explore Sylvia Moraz Moreno's misguided murders for Santa Muerte. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire, Carly Madden, and Jeanette Manning. Cults is written by M.W. Cartosian Wilson and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 